trick and two and three and four and
given us everything through his amazing love. Come on, let's just sing these words from the old hymn to tell him that it's him and him alone. He is our cornerstone. He is our rock. It's him who we worship today. Come on, sing it out. My hope.
to set me free. 
That's why we're here today. Because it's you and you alone. There's no one else. You're the only one that died for us and came back to life so that we could have life. God, we're alive because you're alive. We have true, authentic life because of you. And so, Lord, that's why we celebrate the risen Savior today. God, we thank you for it. And we give you all the praise. In Jesus' name, everyone said, amen. Amen. It's good to see everyone here on Easter Sunday. And uh, why don't you just turn and welcome a few people and then grab a seat. Welcome to JFC. Well, I'm sure it was said to you multiple times on your way in, but happy Easter. Wow. Let's do that one more time. There's like 600 people in here, and I heard like four people say it to me. One more time. Happy Easter. And welcome to JFC. We are so glad that you guys came out here for our Sunday morning Easter services. What a blessing it is, just the weather outside, that we get to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You know, Easter, I think, is probably the best weekend out of the entire year because it shows that the Savior that we worship, that Jesus, God's Son, not only died for our sins but was risen back to life, and we get to celebrate the fact that not only was he risen to life, but we have life because of him. And I think that's the greatest news that anybody could ever hear. I think it's the greatest thing. We're a church that celebrates Jesus, and we just appreciate you coming in for just the celebration of the resurrection of Jesus in this place. Hey, if it is your first time here to JFC, you are our VIP. If you did not get a chance to stop at our VIP tent on the way in, I would highly encourage you to stop on the way out. We have friendly people that just want to shake your hand, get to know you, find out how you found out about our church, and really uh, give you a gift, some information, and help answer any questions you may have about JFC, about who we are and how we do what we do. Um, And so we just have wonderful people out there as well. We really would love to get information from you, too, in the sense of just how did you find out about our church? Is this your first time? How many times have you been? So if you're a guest and you've never filled out a visitor card, I would highly encourage you right now in the next couple minutes, go on your smartphone to jfc.org slash hello, and you can actually fill out a visitor card while you're sitting in your seat. Nothing better than that, right? So then when you come out, all you really do is have to get coffee and donuts and a gift. So either way, we are so appreciative that you're here. We love all of you, but you as our guests are our VIPs today. Hey, if this is your church, you know that we do not pass plates or buckets or any of that kind of stuff for the offering. We just have wooden boxes located near the end of each exit and in the foyer where we drop our tithes and our offerings off every week, and we're just faithful. We say thank you for the faithfulness that you give, but what we really want to do is thank and praise the blesser, the one who has given us the things that we have. So would you guys just pray with me? God, you are so good, and we come this Easter weekend realizing and recognizing the fact that we need Jesus so bad. Lord, in you and in your son is life, an abundant life. And we thank you for what you've given to us through Jesus. God, I thank you for the faithfulness of the people in this church that give week in and week out. Father, but more importantly, we thank you that you have blessed us with the ability to give. Father, and we just ask that you would take 
everything that's given to this church, whether it be time or energy or talent or finances, and multiply it so that the name of Jesus would move forward in this land, in this place, and that we would honor you appropriately. We lift you up, we praise you, and we say thank you, God. And all God's people said, amen. Pastor John, good news, this tomb is empty. It's Easter weekend, and have I got some exciting news for you. This tomb right here fits the narrative in the Bible. It looks like the place that Jesus was described as being laid into, but here's the most important news. I mean the most important news for all of mankind. He's no longer here, he's alive. The Bible tells us that on the first day of the week, the women came to an anoint at a dead body, but an angel met them right here in the spot and told them, why are you looking for the living amongst the dead? He's no longer here. Folks, we are invited never again to have to participate in the death of this world, but we are overcomers because he's an overcomer and he offers to us his life. In the Bible, the word power is translated into Greek dunamis, which is where we get the word dynamite from. Can you imagine 2,000 years ago, God's dynamite exploding through this place? The enemy forever embarrassed and ashamed and defeated because of the work of Christ. And here's the promise. Jesus invites us into that life with him. This weekend, we're going to talk about what it means to have the life of God. We're going to give everyone at all of our campuses the opportunity to experience the life of God. Get ready. It's empty. He's alive. Yeah. <laughs> that guy can preach up there. That's all right. Yeah. <laughs> I'll tell you a quick story. We shot that in November. And uh, if, you, if you remember history, November was the last skirmish that was going on in Israel. In fact, it was the first time that a, uh, a rocket fired from Gaza had ever made it as far as Jerusalem, if you remember. So we had scheduled to take that trip. It's an expensive trip to put together, and we've shot a lot of video, helped us with a lot of messages that we're doing, a number of different things. But I called my guide, and I said to him, hey, Reuben, do we still come, or should we cancel the trip? And this is what he said. He said, John, uh, the best intelligence I have is that in the next 24 hours, there's going to be um, a peace that comes up. And he said, here's what has happened. Groups from all over the world have canceled because of what's going on. And if you and Chris don't make the trip, here's what I could promise you. He said, I believe there's going to be peace, and you'll have Israel all to yourself if you still make the trip. So we went by faith. Sure enough, right before we got on the airplane, there was a truce call. There was peace. We landed in Israel right after that skirmish. Everybody else had canceled. We had the entire thing to ourselves. That place right there is the garden tomb, and it's one of the places that we go when we take groups to Israel. So this September, we're taking 84 people to Israel, man. What a, what a deal that's going to be. But we take people to that garden tomb, and they'll be able to bear out what I'm about to say. It's one of the busier places that you go to. Tourists flock to that place. Good, a, a good wait is 15 minutes to get into that tomb. A bad wait is about 45 minutes to an hour to get in that tomb. Chris and I were the only ones in the place when we were there. I got to shoot from inside that tomb three different times preaching, coming out of that thing. I would have never been able to shoot that video had there been it, it full of tourists and this and that. God just gave that to us and felt like, man, we knew that that was going to work for this coming Easter. And that is the good news. The tomb is empty, huh? Wow. Excited about that. So, hey, let me tell you a little bit about what's happened. I, I made a deal that I would teach this weekend from every campus live. I have gone to every campus. This is my last message 
that I'm finally teaching. Started yesterday at 3 o'clock. We've done 15 services over the weekend, four different campuses, and this is my last service. Now, I haven't done all 15. Don't, don't, don't get me wrong. I would be dead if that was the case. But this is, this is my last, my sixth one. So, so I, I've done six of them live. It would be my last one. And um, I, somebody asked me, are you tired? Not yet. 45 minutes from now, when I can find a place to sit down and the adrenaline starts to come off, yeah, then I'll go to sleep and rest for a little while. Right now, I'm actually more excited than I have been for any of the other ones. This is my last one, my last chance to teach this message, and I'm excited about this message. If you grab your notes, we'll jump into it. It's the last message in our Easter series, and we titled our series, Prayer, Pain, and Power. We took three of the major events from the passion of Jesus and have been talking about them over the past couple of weeks. Now today, obviously with the resurrection, we're going to be talking about the power of God. And if you're here today as an invited guest, maybe you're not even a believer. You're not a Christian. You're just, uh, you're honoring somebody. You're, you're, you said yes to an invitation, and you go, what's the passion? Well, the passion is the terminology that Christians give to the last weekend, last week really, of Jesus' life. His last week on earth, what he went through, what he did for us. Here's what we believe, that Jesus was sent as a substitution for us, that he lived a perfect, sinless life, and that God laid upon Jesus what we deserved so that we could have what he deserved. And that, in a nutshell, is the gospel story. Now, so many people are familiar with it. Even if you're not a believer, you probably know about the Easter story. Last night, I mean, you know, the, the Ten Commandments are even put on TV still. There's still a, a relationship with things that are Christian in our nation. So that even if you're not a believer, I bet you're somewhat familiar with the Easter story and what it means. Well, here's what I want to do today. I want to take it all the way from the great, big, grandiose story of God sending his son. I want to try to take it down to the level and to the context of you being able to touch it today and get close to it and handle it for yourself. Here's what's supposed to happen with the Easter story. We're not supposed to just know about it. We're supposed to experience it for ourselves. It's not a story that we're supposed to be able to just recite. We're supposed to have lived it ourselves, to recognize that Jesus did what he did for us, that he did it individually. There's a scripture in Isaiah that says your face is tattooed on the hands of God. Do you know that? I like to think the Bible says that it was the joy set before Jesus that allowed him to endure the pain and the shame of the cross. I like to think that the joy that was set before him is that he looked down and he could see our faces, knowing that when he was done, we'd be secure with him. The best way to honor them is to experience for yourself the fact that he did it for you. Not just know the story from afar, not just read it as a 2,000-year-old event, not see it as some sanitized story, but get into it. Touch it and experience it for yourself. So I began to ask when I was studying, God, how in the world do I take a story? John 3, 16, maybe the most familiar scripture that we all know. It's at every football stadium plastered on the TV. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believed in him wouldn't perish but have everlasting life. What a famous scripture that is right there. And it explains how God loves us and what he did for us. But here's the problem. It's God doing it. And it's from a distance. And we can believe that God could do something like that because he's God. But how do you take that story of God giving his only son, the one that he loved, and Jesus meant so much to him, how do we take that story and bring it down to the level where we can feel what it was like and experience what it was like? So when I was studying, I went to the Old Testament. A lot of people have trouble with the Old Testament. They tend to, I joke about this, but really this is how people tend to do it. 
They tend to see the Old Testament as God in a bad mood, and the New Testament, he woke up on the right side of the bed. And they, they tend to see in the Old Testament, he was angry and he was mad, but in the New Testament, he became nice. Well, that's, that's incorrect theology. The Bible says that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So either he was bad all the time, or he's been good all the time. How many of you believe he's good all the time? That's what I believe. So we then have a correct misunderstanding of the Old Testament if we think that it shows God is angry. It doesn't. The Old Testament begins to show the need for a Savior. God gives the law in the Old Testament, and here's the truth. None of us are able to live up to the law. God's standard of perfection is perfection. How many times do you have to blow it to not be perfect? How many of you have blown it in the parking lot out there just now? To be honest with me, trying to come in off of that street. The poor guys are out there going like this with their wands, and some of you are calling them names. You had names for them. Yeah. I want you to know those guys are volunteering. Here's what we ought to do. We ought to tip them. We ought to thank them. They're the only way that we even got in here this morning. When I came back from the Lakewood campus trying to turn off of Lincoln out here, it was an experience, a good five minutes to get through this light. And I kept thinking, what is holding us up up here? We got we to get going. I t Dan was driving me. I said, I'm going to jump out of the car and run ahead and tell these guys we got to get going. And then I get up there and I see how hard they're working. And I thought, this is why Jesus had to die right here. <laughs> this idiot with a big mouth. Anybody else got a mouth problem? Yeah, thank you. He had to do it for us. All right, how do I take that story and how do I make it then where the context comes home? So I'm looking in the Old Testament and I found a story that I think you're going to be able to relate to and put it in a, a, a human context of what God did. Now, the Bible in the Old Testament begins to tell the story of Abraham and of the three great monotheistic religions in the world, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, they all revere Abraham, every one of them. Jews today see Abraham as the guy. They're waiting for Messiah, but they still see Abraham as the guy. Islam, Islam sees Abraham as their father. Remember that one of his children, the Arabs, came from Abraham. And so Islamic people believe that Abraham is the father of their religion, not the prophet Muhammad, but the father ultimately that they came from. And then Christians, what do we believe? We believe that Abraham was the original patriarch of our faith that God spoke to and gave the original covenant to. You remember that God came to Abraham and said, come out from these people. I'll be your God. You'll be my people. I will love you. I will bless you and I will make you a blessing. And through you, everybody on the earth is going to be blessed. Isn't it amazing how Abraham is the central figure in every major world religion where people try to reach out and find God? Isn't that an amazing fact? Right, we see Abraham then as a patriarch of our faith, not the savior of our faith. We see Abraham as a person to be admired and looked to. And what God told Abraham was, come out from these people, follow me, Abraham, and I'll bless you. Abraham was an old man by the time God decided to fulfill his promise. Here was the promise that God gave to Abraham. I will make from you a nation so numerous, if you could count the number of stars in the sky, you'll still have more children than that. And if you can count the number of sand on the seashore, you'll still have more children than that. Real quickly, how many of you are hoping that's the covenant that you get locked in? Yeah, no, that's not the one. Here's the covenant that we get. We get, I will bless you and you will be a blessing. That's the covenant that we get. In the book of Galatians, the New Testament, the Bible says that Jesus became a curse for us because cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree so that the blessing of Abraham could come to the Gentiles. 
What was the blessing of Abraham? I will bless you. I will make you great. I will be your God and you will be my people. So through Abraham, the original covenant is given. And Jesus is the one who fulfills that for us. Abraham, though, to back to his story, he is met when he's an old man by the angel of the Lord. And the angel tells him, about next year at this time, your wife is going to be pregnant and have a son. Now, here's the problem. Abraham was an old man, and the Bible reckoned it this way. It said he was dead in his ability to have children. And his wife had gone through menopause, and I don't need to tell you that for her to have a child at that point is a miracle. She's an old woman, and the Bible says that her womb is as good as dead. And the angel of the Lord says, about next year at this time, you're going to have a son. You're going to be pregnant, and you're going to have a son. And she was on the other side of the tent listening, Sarah. And the Bible says she laughed at God. And the angel of the Lord asked her, why did you laugh? And she said, I didn't laugh. And the Lord said, yes, you did. I heard you. And it, the angel actually was incredulous because he couldn't believe that a person wouldn't believe that God can do anything. What's impossible with man is not impossible with God. Death to us is the ultimate end. Here's the problem. Jesus conquered death. God is over death. So what for us is an impossibility for God is nothing. What we look at and can't do anything about, God is like, watch this. So let me take a moment and just say this. You know, you're all sitting in this nice air-conditioned auditorium right now, downstairs and out in the foyer. People are crowded in listening to our message right now. I'd like to take a moment and let them know that we appreciate the fact that they're here too and that they are part of this message. Abraham is promised a son and God fulfills his promise. A year later, his wife is pregnant. She has a boy. Does anybody remember the name of the boy? Isaac. Isaac in Hebrew means laughter. God is not going to let Sarah forget that she laughed at him for the rest of her life. Every time she calls his name, she's calling him laughter. It's a reminder of the promise. Isaac is the son of all sons to Abraham. Abraham loves Isaac, and Isaac loves Abraham. And we pick up the story then a little while longer when Isaac is still a young man. In Genesis 22, 1 and 2, it says sometime later, God, what? Tested Abraham. Let me ask you the question. Does God have the right to test you? And does he have the right to test you with what he gives you? Wow, three of us. Let's try again. <laughs> You know, this is normally like the outgoing service. So let's try that one more time. Does God have the right to test you? Yes. You know, some are like, if I don't answer that, he won't test me, right? Wrong. <laughs> what do you think? If you don't answer, you get out of the test? It doesn't work that way. In fact, if you answer, maybe he goes, ah, you already get it, so I'll pass you over. So let's try again. How many of you know God has the right to test you? Yes. And he can test you with what he gives you. So God gives to Abraham a son named Isaac. The Bible teaches that sometime later, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac. Go to the region of Moriah and sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain that I will show you. Does it not suddenly sound like another story from the New Testament that you know? That God so loved the world that he gave his only son whom he loved. Here's the difference. Abraham, ultimately, if you remember the story, he builds the sacrifice, he binds Isaac, he lays him on there, he raises the knife, and the angel of the Lord says, stop. And Abraham didn't have to go through with it. But when God raised the knife over his son, he plunged it right in, didn't he? He didn't stop the death of Jesus. It had to happen for our sakes. All right, here's what I would like to teach you this morning and take you into the message and see if you get it. 
When I think about God giving Jesus, I'm able to say, I get that. You love us. You care for us. You're God. Of course you could make the ultimate sacrifice. It's hard for me to relate to it because he's God and I'm not. He's infinite and I'm finite. He's ever existing and I'm created. But when I think about a man named Isaac and Abraham who were just like me, who felt what I felt, who experienced what I experienced, it changes everything. So let me ask you if you have children. If God asked you to pick a son, could you? Could you do what Abraham did? I recognize it's completely rhetorical. I hope it causes you consternation right now. I hope you're not able to go, oh yeah, I could do it. I hope you sit here and have to think about it for a moment, because here's what it caused me. I don't know that I could do what Abraham did. Could you? I don't know that I could do it. So I wrote down, if you've got a pen or a pencil, I put two fill in the blanks, and here they are. I'll give them to you quickly. The first one is just simply this. How could God ask such a thing? I sit up here and I say that God is good and God is merciful, and he's always the same. And yet here we find God asking Abraham to do something that's unbelievable. And yet God was willing to do the very thing that he asked Abraham to do, wasn't he? So I put down, how could God ask such a thing? The second question may be equally as important. How could Abraham do such a thing? I have trouble with this. This bothers me because I think about my three sons and I could not do what Abraham did. I could not take them by the hand and faithfully go to a place to sacrifice them. In fact, here's the truth. I live my life so that my kids have it better than I do. Anybody else like that? I give everything that I have so that my kids are successful. In fact, when my kids do good, it's like me doing good. And when they hurt, it's like I hurt. When they fail, I can't stand it. And when they're successful, man, it's like it's me. It's myself being successful. I love my children. I give everything for them to sacrifice them. I struggle with this. I wrestle with this. And here's the thing. I'm a pastor. I know God. I know the faithfulness of God and the mercy of God. But I don't know if I could do this. So I'm stuck asking the two questions. God, how can you ask such a thing? Abraham, how can you do such a thing? And I found it. Found the answer. You want the answer? It's in your book. Look at your notes right here. Hebrews 11:19. 19. When I count to three, why don't you read it out loud with me? Because it's an interesting scripture. One, two, three. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. Look at me. Does that not change everything suddenly? If you knew that God who gave you the promise, listen, her womb was dead, his body was dead, their ability to have a child was way past time, and God still did it, didn't he? He's not the God who is hindered by death. God can even bring life in our death. So if they suddenly realize that God who gave me this promise could instantaneously bring my promise back to life, it wouldn't make it so hard to follow obedience, would it? This is how the father was able to sacrifice the son. The life giver knew, even if he gives his life, I'll blow it right back into his nostrils. <laughs> He'll live forever. It changes everything when you understand the power of the resurrection. We sit here and we claim to know the Easter story. Here's what it means to know the Easter story, that you know the power of God, that you're intimate with what God is able to do for you. To know the Easter story doesn't mean you can tell me the story and recite it. To know the Easter story means that you get what Jesus did for you, that you put yourself vicariously in the spot that Christ laid his life down because you needed him to. 
It's a messy story when you get that close to it. 2,000 years later, it's sanitized and it's cleaned up. But go to it and look at it for what it is, and it's a bloody mess. And it was done because we, the Bible said, we went our own way. We did our own thing. We turned our backs on God. Here's what the Word says. The penalty for sin is death. If God had extracted from us the penalty, the only thing that's left is our death. So he had to take it upon himself and send his son to pay for it because the original intention of creation was this. Look, above everything else that God has for you, here's the one thing he has for all of us. God created you to be in fellowship with him. He created you to know him and to be known by him. That's the original intention of creation. Jesus came to restore the original intention, to bring back the fellowship that we have with the Father, to bring it back so that nothing is between us and God. No wall, no separation, nothing. Jesus is that answer. To claim to know the Easter story is to claim to know the power of God. So I put in your notes three things about the power of God. Let me see if you understand it. If you get the Easter story, then you get these three things. Here's the first one, the power to heal. Let me ask my church. Now, I know not all of you make up my church. We got a lot of visitors this morning, but a lot of you do. So let me ask the question. How many of you believe that God can still heal today? You believe that? Good. I'm glad the majority of you do. I know that he can. I experienced it. I told my story recently in Israel. I've got a bad sacroiliac. It's where your hip connects to your back. I've got a bone that likes to fight with a nerve. And I ended up, at first, it was the funniest thing. I'd bend over and I couldn't stand up. It was like an electrical shock would go off and hold me down. And then sometimes I'd be standing up and I couldn't bend over. And at first it was funny, but then it started to hurt. So I sought the doctors out and the treatment out. It turned out to be a long process. I used to get shots with needles this long in my back. They'd pump it full of cortisone, and I'd jump up, healed. And the doctor would go, no, you're numb. You're not healed, and it's only getting worse. And I would go, well, six more months, let's go. And off I'd go, take the medication, and pray, God, heal my back. When it was bad and it would hurt, I'd pray real fervently. But when it was numb, I didn't pray that much. It was funny. Had a lot of people praying for me. It just seemed like God would answer every other prayer except my prayer to touch me. So we go to Israel, and I'm at the pool of Bethesda where Jesus healed a man who had been lame for 39 years. This happened in just November. I'm at the bottom of that pool. No one else is there. We have a film permit that allows us to go all the way down to the pool, which is where Jesus would have been. Modern Israel is 50 feet above where Jesus would have walked when he lived on the earth. Israel's a conquered nation. Many times when they conquered it, they just knock everything down and build on top of it. So you walk literally 50, 60 feet above where Jesus would have walked. But this pool is an excavated pool where you go all the way down back to the day of Jesus. And it was at this pool that Jesus walked up to a man in John chapter 4 and said, Do you want to be made well? And the man said, I have no one to help me into the water. The rumor of the day was that an angel would come and stir the water up and the first one into the water would be healed. The man said, I have no one to help me into the water. It was almost like he's saying to Jesus, You want to help me? Stay here till the water gets stirred up and then help me get in front of everybody and get in the water. He doesn't know who he's talking to. He doesn't realize that the very one who created him, who could heal him, all he has to do is say, yes, I want to be healed. Jesus has mercy on him anyway and tells him, get up and walk. Take your mat. Your sins are forgiven. Go your way. The guy up and goes. I'm standing at this pool. I film a little, a little, little thing that, that we, we did for a message. When he gets done, Terry, who shot the film, turned around. He walked up the stairs. I turned around and I looked at that pool one last time because I thought to myself, I may never get back here again. 
and I want to take it in right now. And I was using my imagination. What did it look like? And where, where were the people at? And where did Jesus come in at? And I'm trying to picture it. And I felt like the Holy Spirit asked me, what do you think about the story of that man being healed? Not do you believe the story, but what do you think about it in terms of me being able to do that for you? Here was my answer. I don't know. It wasn't that I didn't believe that God could do it. I just hadn't experienced it and I had prayed for it for so long that I think my faith had grown cold. I began to walk up the stairs and I remember telling the Lord, Lord, I don't mean to offend you. I totally believe that you can heal me. I just don't know why you haven't done it and I don't know how I feel about it anymore. No angel appeared. I didn't hear an audible voice. Nobody touched me. But I go back to my hotel room and my back's not hurting anymore. Two and three days go by, my back doesn't hurt anymore. I come back to Denver, I go to the doctor, I tell him, I've got to tell you something, my back's not hurting anymore. He goes, what do you attribute this miracle to? That's what he says to me. What do you attribute this miracle to? I'm a politician. I said two things, a really good doctor. <laughs> I love the man. And the second thing, a really good God. I said, I believe in miracles, and I think that God might have touched my back. I think I've been healed. And he said, well, if you're healed, then it'll be like this next month and the month after and the month after. So we're working December, January, February, March, about to go into April, and guess what? I'm good to go, man. <laughs> now, now, listen. I don't want you to relate to the story on that level. I want to ask you this question. Do you believe that Jesus died just so that you could be okay physically. You know, here's the problem with that theology. The best healing in this life is still only temporary, isn't it? Here's what I know. Of the human condition, it's 100% fatal. If you don't understand that, ask on the way home. Here's a better way to say it. This is life and no one gets out alive. How about that? So if God touches your body and heals you, it's still temporary, isn't it? You're still going to die and healing's still only going to last till then. But here's what Isaiah says. 800 years before Jesus was born on the earth, 800 years, Isaiah prophesies about what Jesus would look like, what Jesus would do, how he would handle situations. He prophesies an entire chapter about Jesus 800 years before he's born. In verse 5 of Isaiah 53, it says this. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement that gave us peace was put upon him, and by his stripes we are we're healed. Here's my question. Did Jesus die just so you could be healed in your body, or did he die so that he could touch the death of your spirit and make you alive again? Let me tell you the condition of your soul without Jesus. You are dead in your trespasses. You don't need a soul that is healed. You need a new soul. You don't need a spirit that God sort of blows on and massages. You need a new spirit. You are dead in your trespasses without Christ. And he offers to you this hope that if you come to me and you give me your stuff, I'll give you mine. I'll take your sin and give you my life. What a deal. Oh, the greatest deal for eternity. God gives a new soul to a person, a new spirit to them. Wow. In my mind, there's just not a better thing that I could even begin to teach you. Mark chapter 5, 31 talks about a woman who was internally bleeding for 12 years. Jesus is coming to her region of her town. And the Bible says she had spent all of her money on doctors only to grow worse, not any better. 
She heard that Jesus was coming, so she goes down to see him. He came by boat. He gets out of the boat, and the crowd was so large, he couldn't even move past the shore. So he decided to stand there and teach. While he's teaching, the Bible says that Jairus, the synagogue ruler, comes, falls down before him and says, my little daughter is dying. Come to my house and pray for her. So Jesus decides in his mercy to go. But the Bible says the crowds are so thick, he can't even get his arms up. He can't even move his arms. And this woman then enters the picture. She's been bleeding internally for 12 years. She cannot get any help. She is, she is dying. She tells herself, if I could just touch his garment, I don't even have to talk to him. If I could just touch his garment, I'll be made well. She makes her way through this crowd. How she does it in the condition she's in, I don't even know. But she makes her way through and she swipes at him and hits the hem of his garment. This is what the Bible says. Power immediately leaves Jesus and enters her. He recognized it and she recognized it. She's healed and he recognizes that healing virtue left him. So he asked this question, who touched me? And we pick up the story right here. Now the Bible doesn't tell us which disciple said this, but I like to think it was Peter because Peter had a big mouth. <laughs> Didn't he? So here's what, here's what it says. Mark 5.31, you see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you can ask, who touched me? Like everyone touched you? <laughs> Jesus doesn't even debate with them. The Bible says that he just began to spin around looking for the one who touched him. And when his eyes locked with her, it says she fell to the ground and she tells him her whole story. And he in mercy reaches down, lifts her up and tells her, your faith has made you well, go your way. Dude, I believe he heals, but I believe his purpose for healing was not so that your body doesn't hurt. I believe it's so your soul will live forever. Look at me. You're going to be just as alive 10,000 years from now as you are this second. Where you will be is the issue. Jesus died universally for all people, but it is applied individually as you say, I believe it and I want it. Did you get it? Let me take you a little further into this. To get the understanding of the power of God, to know the Easter story, is then to understand the power of God to work outside your box. Number two, how many of you recognize, look, let me just say it to you, and I'll, I'll, I'll try to go as quick as I can. It doesn't matter if you're brand new at this, this is your first time coming to a church, or you've, you've done church for 50 years. Everybody in this room has a box that God lives in in your life. Here's what I mean by that. You have an expectation of what God can and can't do. You have a belief system of what God will and won't do for you. It's a box that you have God in. And here's the, here's the issue. We, we think that God lives inside of this little box and we control him. And the truth of the matter is, God is not in your box. And in fact, what he loves to do is he loves to surprise you and do things outside of your box so that your box gets blown up. He loves to expand our paradigm, doesn't he? How about this? Back in Jesus' day, before he is, he, this, this is how Jesus comes to the earth. The Holy Spirit touches a virgin who's about 15 years old and impregnates her. She comes up and tells people, hey, I'm pregnant, but not the way you think. God did this. Uh-huh. Right. Does this happen to you often? I mean, get it? Here's the problem. Every Pharisee, every law keeper of the day, this is what they said to Mary. God can't do it that way. And every one of them missed Jesus because when you won't let God out of your box, you'll miss it when he wants to act in your life. Hear me on this issue. 
We go, God can't touch somebody that way or God can't speak to these people. Or How about this? There are going to be people in heaven that you're surprised are there. And if you don't believe that, they're going to be equally as surprised that you're there. <laughs> God is so able to get out of your box. Mark chapter 12, it's one of those chapters where Jesus is being tested over and over again by the Pharisees. It's a familiar, uh, a familiar test in that the Pharisees come to him and they said, is it lawful for Jews to pay taxes to Rome? Jesus said, show me a coin. He gets a coin. He said, whose image is on it? And they said, Caesar's. He said, okay, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. Give to God what belongs to God. Let me ask you a question. What is minted in God's image? You are. I am. We are created in his image. That stuff belongs to man, but you, you belong to God. Get that straight, man. You don't belong to this world. You belong to God. You're made in his image. So Jesus answers correctly. So the Pharisees are trying to trap him so they can arrest him and they can call him a, a traitor and they can, they can say that he's full of blasphemy and they can crucify him and get him out of the way. He offends them in everything that he does. They can't accept that he's the Messiah. So they're looking for a way to trap him. So they ask that first question. Jesus answers good. So then another one comes up to him and says, in the law, Moses said, and here's, what, here's the deal. The Pharisees thought they knew the law well, but they don't realize they're talking to the one who wrote the law. So they test him this way. Moses said, if a man marries a woman and he has brothers and he dies, then the brother has to marry the widow and take care of her. So there was a woman and there was a man with seven brothers. How many of you in college took a philosophy class? How many of you wish you could get your money back from that experience in your life? <laughs> I had a professor who used to love to throw out bombs that had no answer to it so that he could prove that ethics changed in situations. There was no ultimate truth, he would say. You know what Proverbs says? One fool can raise more questions than seven righteous men can answer. So these guys come to test Jesus with one of these there is no really correct answer to it. Here's the deal. They don't believe in the resurrection, so they think if they trap Jesus, they can get him on the issue. So they ask him, there was a woman and a man. They get married. The man dies. His brother then marries the widow. He dies. The third one marries her. He dies. The fourth one marries her. By now, what do you think the moral of the story is? How about stay away from this woman? <laughs> you know what she is? Like the black widow of Israel is what she is, man. She's like the, I mean, death personified. Seven brothers marry this woman and they all die. And then she dies. And here was the question. On the judgment day when everyone's resurrected, whose wife will she be? They thought they had him. See, they didn't believe in a resurrection. and They thought they could trap Jesus with the question. Jesus then answers them. Oh, I love the answer. Look at this, man. Mark chapter 12, verse 24, Jesus replied, are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures or what? The power of God. You think you know because you read it. You think you know because you study it. Here's what I know. He knows everything and we know about this much. He's the one who wrote it and we think we interpret it. He's the one who gives it to us and we're going to tell him how to do it. Doesn't work that way, does it? God gets out of your box all the time. He loves to surprise you. How about this? Any death in your life, God would love to touch this morning. Anything that you think, you know what? I deserve what I got. 
I'm living with what I deserve. I acted this way, so I deserve it. Here's what God would do. He'd love to get out of your box and go, okay, let me give you what you didn't deserve. Aren't you glad that God doesn't give us what we do deserve and gave us what we didn't deserve? St. Augustine, one of the fathers of the modern faith, the modern church, defined theology as reasoning and discussion concerning the deity. At the same time, Augustine also wrote, if you think you understand God, it is not God. You get it? If you think you understand God, guess what? It's not God. God is not to be understood like some book. God is not to be understood like a person you marry. God is God. He is huge. You are his creation. He, infinite, you, finite. He, eternally existing, you were created with an expiration date. Thank you, honey, for laughing at my joke because nobody else. I take such encouragement from you. You have no idea. The number of years I have preached and you're the only one who loves me sometimes. God has a special reward for you in heaven. Okay, here's where we go. I put under important, God is bigger than your interpretation of his power. And God is able to do whatever he wants to do. You know what's funny? The resurrection probably surprised the most the disciples. Of all the people who should have been aware of it and ready for it, the disciples, they went to the tomb on Easter morning to anoint a dead body. And an angel met him and said, why are you looking for the living amongst the dead? He is not the God of the dead. He is the God of the living. At least the soldiers who were there were there to try to guard the resurrection from happening. At least they believed it might happen. They're the heathen. They're the ones who serve Rome. The ones who should have known. The ones who Jesus told over and over, here's what's going to happen to me. Didn't expect it to happen. They had God in a box, didn't they? And he blew their paradigm wide open. That's why I say to you, no matter where you are in life, God can touch your death, man. You haven't done anything that's too far for God to reach you. I am trying, friend. I am trying with everything in me. Look, this is six services and I'm a little tired right now. Uh, but I'm still, I'm giving it everything I got. This is, this is, I'm wringing it all out right now. The resurrection, man, it surprised especially the disciples, the one who should have got it. Let me give you the last one. If you say you know the Easter story, here's what you're claiming. You understand the power of new life. To claim to know the Easter story, the resurrection story, is to claim to know God's power. Do you know about his power or do you know his power? Have you read it from a distance or have you come up close and touched it for yourself? <laughs> you remember in the Passover story, even the Jews were not safe from the angel of death unless they took the blood of the lamb and applied it to the doorpost of their life. Just because you were Jewish didn't mean you were safe. Only those who applied personally the sacrifice were safe. That's what it means to accept Christ. Jesus died universally for every person, all of their sin, yesterday, today, and tomorrow. But it is only applied personally as you say, I want that in my life. God stands like this towards you. Not like this, not like this. He stands like this and asks the question, do you want me? So I stand here there and ask you the question, what will you do with this Jesus? He's either a liar, a lunatic, or he's a Lord. He can only be one of those things, not all of those things. Which one do you say? Some will claim he's a liar. Okay, let me ask you this question. 
If he's a liar, then why not after he's dead, why would the disciples go ahead and give their life for a lie? Every one of them went to their death to preach the gospel. If Jesus was a fraud, why not go back to fishing? They lived poor lives. They didn't do it for the money. There was no money in it for them. They lived, they lived on the run. They lived beaten and abandoned. Many of them at many times starved trying to teach people about Jesus. Why do that if it's not true? So let's take the lie out of it. So he's a lunatic then, right? Well, if he's a lunatic, then why today are churches all over the world filled with people worshiping a lunatic? He's not a lunatic. He's Lord. And your theology doesn't allow for it because no one wants to come face to face with the question of heaven. We all want to put it off. We all want to go, but not now. So the question becomes, how do you get there? Most of us apply it this way. Well, I try to do good things. I try to be a good person. I try to live a good life. Okay, how good is good enough? Draw the line. Some are going to say, well, you just try your best. Come on. Jesus said, unless you find a righteousness that's better than a man's righteousness, you'll never make it to heaven. That's why he offers you his righteousness. I'm reading a book right now. I don't recommend it because it'll confuse you. Let me tell you this book. It's called Gravity and Grace, written by Simone Weil. She's a, she was a Jewish woman. She's dead now. She was a Jewish woman raised underneath a strict Orthodox Jewish upbringing. She was taught the law very well. She was exposed to Jesus, and here's what happened. She fell in love with Jesus because Jesus made sense of the Old Testament. In fact, she loved him so much, she became a studier of Christianity and a theologian and wrote books about Christianity. But listen to this. She would never convert to Christianity because she was afraid her family would disown her. So she actually became a theologian who wrote books about Jesus but never personally believed in him or never trusted him or never gave herself to him. The reason I put this down in my notes, I'm going to read you a quote that for so many of you, this is exactly where you are in life. She compared her relationship with God to this. She said, compared to humanity's relationship with God is to compare that of two prisoners in an adjoining cell. The wall is what separates the two, but it's also the only way that they have to communicate with each other. By tapping out crude messages in Morse code, they're saying to each other, here I am, how are you? I want to know if everything's all right in your world. And she said, that's how it is for me and God. There's like this wall between us. And I know he's trying to talk to me and I'm trying to talk to him, but it's so crude and I don't know how to get through the wall. This is what Jesus did. Jesus comes and breaks down the wall so that we hear clearly what God is trying to say. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. No more tapping on the wall. No more trying to figure out the message. No more, I hope he loves me. Now it's for sure. Here's one thing I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that all three synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, include in their narrative about the death of Jesus. At the moment he died in the temple, there was a curtain that covered the Holy of Holies. Behind that curtain lived the presence of God. On this side of the curtain was humanity. Once a year, the high priest could go behind the curtain making sacrifice for the sins of the people, but only once a year, and he had to be perfect when he did it. Otherwise, he would die. No one else could go back there. If they went back there, the presence of God was too much, would kill him instantly. 
The moment Jesus died, here's what Matthew, Mark, and Luke say. The curtain in the temple that separated God's presence from the rest of the world was torn from the top to the bottom. Not from the bottom to the top, from the top to the bottom. So I began to study that. I'm looking for that. So why, why does the Bible take the time to tell us it's torn from the top to the bottom? What does that mean? God hides things so that those who want to search out can find treasure. So I'm looking, I'm consulting every concordance I have. I'm asking every person I know. Nobody can tell me why it was torn from the top to the bottom. I'm sitting there meditating on it. Get it. 2 Corinthians, my favorite scripture. It's right there in your notes. Chapter 5, verse 17. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. All of this is from God. It's not my story. It's not my idea. God did it. Who reconciled us to himself through his son and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. You know, my job is not to stand up here and point out anybody's sin. My job is to do one thing, to tell everybody that God wants a relationship with you. That's my job, to point out that God wants to be reconciled to you. The curtain is torn from the top to the bottom because when God reached down, of course, he would grab the top of it and tear it from the top to the bottom. If a man is telling this story, he'd grab the bottom of the curtain, wouldn't he, and tear it to the top. It's little things like that, little secrets like that that bear witness to the authenticity of the Scripture. Things that people read every day that they never pick up. Oh, wow. God himself, this is his idea, not mine, not yours, not your friends, not your wife, not your husband, not your children. This is God's idea. He loves you so much that he gave the ultimate sacrifice to say the wall is knocked down and I stand like this and I ask you the question, what will you do with this Jesus? You will never walk away from this service being able to say, I was not given a chance to decide. You pray with me? So Father, at the very end of this message, here's where we come to. I'm going to ask people where they're at concerning your son. I'm going to ask them what they want to do about the relationship with you. Folks, while your heads are bowed, your eyes are closed, there's a reason that I ask you to do that. It's not because we're trying to hide anything. It's because I'm trying to make something very personal and very applicable between just you and God. Now, I'm a mediator. I'm the one in the middle trying to explain it. And I'm going to ask you in just a moment if you want this relationship. If you're here, maybe you fall into one of two things that I'm going to pray for today. The first one would be simply what I said. Have you ever said to God, be merciful to me? Have you ever said to God, I need to apply this sacrifice to my life? Have you ever said, I believe? Have you ever said to him, God, forgive me of my sins? If you've never said that and you want to, here's what I would say to you today. God is so excited to get your attention. All of heaven is set to rejoice because you heard the message and you respond to it. If you've never prayed that prayer before and you want to, I'm going to give you a chance in just a second. The second thing that I would pray for would be this. Maybe at some point in your life, maybe, maybe you have prayed that. Maybe you've said, I, I do believe. But where you are today is so far away from God. Somehow you've just sort of gone your own way. You're doing your own thing. If you were to describe your relationship with him, you'd use words like this, distant, cold, indifferent. Your terminology would be what God did a long time ago, not what he's doing today. It wouldn't be present tense. It would be past tense. 
So here's what I would say to you. If you're here and you're away from God, he's asking you if you want to come home today. He offers to you his mercy and his grace just like the first time you prayed for it. There's no difference. He still loves you. He still cares for you. You haven't gone too far for God to be able to reach you. If you fall into any of those two places, I'm going to ask you in a moment, raise your hand. Before you do that, though, here's what I want to promise you. If you raise your hand, I will not embarrass you. I will not make you stand up. I will not send you any place. I won't make you do anything. No one's going to point you out, and no one's going to come to you. You will do this between you and God. I'm just the facilitator of something right now. If you fall into either of those places, you've never prayed that prayer, or you're away from God, you want to come back to Him. You say, Pastor, would you remember me when you pray today? Would you just slip your hand up right now and say, pray for me, John? You bet. Sure. There's a lot of us. Yep. You put them up, put them back down. If you want in on this prayer, just slip your hand up real quick. I'll just hold it for another second. Pray for me. Hey, we designed the whole day for this moment right here. Thanks. Yep, I see you. Put them back down. Thanks. It's a lot of us. Okay. Folks, let's make this as easy as possible for these people. I'm going to pray. I just want you all to follow me in this prayer. Just respond after me. Heavenly Father, in Jesus' name, I approach you. Forgive me of my sins. Show me your mercy. Thank you for loving me. I want to come home today. I believe in Jesus. And I trust you. In Jesus' name. Okay, now look up at me. The Bible does not give us any particular prayer we pray or any way that we need to pray in order to come to God. But here's what's important. You do need to mean it when you say it. Now, if you raised your hand, I'm going to ask you if you'll do this. I'm sorry, but I have to put the impetus on you. There's no other way for me to do it. We put together this packet. It's just a packet of how to have a relationship with God. Inside the packet is this card. The card has three boxes on it. The top box says, this is the first time I've prayed this prayer. I want you to grab this packet on your way out. People standing at all the exits, downstairs in the overflow, out in the auditorium, out in the foyer. They're out there too. They have these packets. Open the packet, grab it. If you prayed that prayer for the first time, check that box. Bring it to our Connect, Grow, Serve table or to the people who handed you this envelope. We have a book for you that applies to where you're at in life. The second box says, I've prayed that prayer, but I've been away from God. Then we've got a book for you. It would be applicable to where you are in life. The last box just simply says this, I'd like to talk to somebody about the decision that I made today. The only way you'll be contacted is if you check that box. Otherwise than that, we have no way to know where you were sitting. There was no camera that was looking for you, marking you, getting ready to come and swarm on you right now. I promise you, what I said was true. If you walk out of this building and you don't grab this, no one's going to do anything to you. But I'm asking you, look at me. If you prayed that prayer and you meant it, would you not take a moment and get this? Would you not help me to help you? Help me to help you right now. The most important information you can read if you made that decision is going to be this in the next 24 hours. It will help you have a relationship with God. You go, why is it important? Man, I'm sorry for the dumb explanation, but it's the only one I got. Chris and I will be married 30 years coming up in December. 30 years ago when we got married, she didn't go back to her house, and I go to my house, and then we see each other on the weekends. Every day, we work on having a relationship with each other. 
Some people think they make a decision about God and then they meet him on the weekends. It's not what it is. You have a relationship with him every day. Every day he wants you to talk to him and he wants to talk to you. Every day you grow. Every day he's got something for you. That's what this is about. Take a moment and grab it. Spend a few minutes filling it out. I promise you it'll make all the difference in your life. All right, I'm done. That, that's it. That Literally, I'm, I'm done. <laughs> I'm going to check out here. So, folks, I want to thank you for joining us on this Easter, our last service here at Lone Tree. Thanks for taking the time to be with us. When our worship pastor comes to close right now, I encourage you this. You're going to get up. There's a lot of you. Uh, don't, don't sit in the parking lot. Love each other in the parking lot. <laughs> Give preference to each other in the parking lot. Why are you not responding? Some of you are like, no, I'm going to get them in the park. No, you're not. Be nice in the parking lot to each other. Give people a chance. Let them in. Let them go in front of you. I won't let you go unless you agree to do this right now. Okay, that's good. Give people a break. God bless you. We love you. Stand to your feet. We'll give it to our worship pastor. If you need to go, we understand. If you want to sing this last song, his power with us, it's great. Thank you for coming today. If you are a first-time visitor, make sure to swing by the VIP tent. Go in his resurrection power. Have a happy Easter.
He's risen. He's risen indeed. Go have a great week.